In the face of the current atrocities perpetrated against the Ukrainian people by the government of Russia, we want to make you all aware of an opportunity to provide free therapy to those most impacted by the war in Ukraine. The organization called It's Complicated has created a platform for therapists from all around the world to offer their services for free. Particularly if you speak Ukrainian or Russian, please consider creating a profile at itscomplicated.life slash en slash Ukraine. It's Complicated is providing a secure online platform to conduct the sessions and will match people needing support with available therapists free of charge. Please consider creating a profile to provide free therapy to those impacted by the war. Go to itscomplicated.life slash en slash Ukraine. We want to give you an update about somatic integration and processing trainings coming up. SIP-1 and SIP-2 are both approved for 21 NBCC hours, and we have big news. They are also each approved for 10 hours of approved advanced credit through MDRIA. So if you're working on your EMDR certification, SIP trainings can count towards your needed advanced training hours. We're so excited to be able to offer this to all of you. More exciting news is that we're offering SIP-1 for an Australian time zone. On July 22nd through the 24th, we will host a virtual training starting at 7 a.m. UTC plus 10. If you're in another time zone, you're welcome to attend this one as well. But we've had so many people from Australia reach out about SIP that we wanted to make it more accessible for all of you. We also have SIP-1 available in American time zones on June 23rd through the 25th, and again on October 20th through the 22nd. Go to our website for all this info and more at beyondhealingcenter.com or email us at trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. Thanks so much. Welcome to The Evidence-Based Therapist, a podcast where we read so you don't have to. Here you'll find three therapists discussing cutting-edge research articles, explaining why and how people work together to find healing. Welcome back to The Evidence-Based Therapist, where we read so you don't have to. Uh, Melissa, Caleb, and myself, Bridger, are here in the studio today to talk about another article in our series on embodiment mm-hmm. and in uh, somatics. somatics. Yeah. Um, this article that we're getting ready to read um, is from the Journal of Psychological Perspectives, copyrighted by the Jungian Institute of Los Angeles. Well, that's Hello. cool already. Yeah. says a lot about <laughs> it. From Rutledge, which is a favorite. Yeah, which we talked see, about. You guys it's see why favorite. I chose this article. Like when yeah. I found it, I'm like, it's ooh, tasty. <laughs> it is a wedding. Yes. Um, but the title is Psyche Within the Matrix of the Natural World, Emergence, Restoration, and Sustainability by Barbara Hollyfield. Mm-hmm. This article um, talks in a way that none of the other articles up to now have. That's right. And so it's important for us to, you know, even in just introducing this article to preface that for you i hope you all mm-hmm. go and read it because it's uh-huh. a very different experience very easy reading yes yes and very imaginative yeah, it, it stokes something curious in you and so in that we're going to have this sort of tandem kind of going between what it means clinically and what it means uh even just functionally as humans yes um, to really remember what is eco psychology what is eco somatics 
And how are we as humans to try and make sense of Mm -hmm. our relationship to ourselves and the earth and each other? Um, So it's going to have a little bit of a different feel because it's not based on the quote-unquote scientific publication requirements of here's your introduction, your lit review, your now sample, and on and on. Um, but it is a, a case study of a moment, mm-hmm. yeah. which is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just love, like, just to take a second of, like, because part of this podcast is orienting therapists to the beauty of the academic field, which yes. we hold, but we also know, like, gets objectified very easily. Mm-hmm. And, people and it's hard like to, like, it. yeah, <laughs> it's hard to get into that, like, um, pool and enjoy the water. But a lot of people don't know that this kind of thing exists there too. Well, that's yeah. what I was saying. Like <laughs> even the way we're talking about it. Yeah. 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 This article is like a, um, again, it's from the Jungian Institute of LA. So like, there's a lot of like analytic, creative, mm-hmm. metaphorical liberty mm-hmm. in that sort of writing. Because if you think back all the way to Freud, Freud is using his, I mean, he's a neurologist, but he uses so much metaphor and his understanding of the world as he's experienced it to make sense of his yeah, theories. Cause he, it's more than I can put into a single yeah. word. Yeah. Like so much of, I mean, this is analysis, psychoanalysis at its most core was based on observation and interpretation. Yep. And so like this article feels that rhythm of she goes in and out of, observing and then interpreting mm-hmm. observing and interpreting yeah. Yeah. she uses the natural world she uses the psychological world like oh it's it's such a beautiful dance but yeah. it is qualitatively so much different yes to to read this than it is to go read a random control trial mm-hmm. where i'm kind of like skimming through the methods to make sure it's legit i'm kind <laughs> of skimming through like some of the kind of results did and you then, skim um, any of this article i did not skim no. a single part <laughs> i even looked at the piece of art which is oh, fully beautiful. printed on the second yes. page yes mm-hmm. um but i'm i'm not i wasn't doing that i was just i was in it and then mm-hmm. i like made a comment in a moat episode we recorded on this just before this of how like there were there's so many notes that i have in the margin because yeah. this sort of style just brings up something different and then there's a creative creativity in play so i say all that to say like i love analytic writing and to include it in the academic field may help some of our readers get this sense of like vitality and curiosity and creativity that may feel lacking in places like strict random control trials or more quantitative research although i still argue that that's there but yeah um, Mm -hmm. i was gonna say to me no like to me it, it is there i agree that it's not taught in so many circles and the amount of comments i get about this podcast where it's like if i had this type of conversation in my graduate program i would love research mm-hmm. i just didn't even know that this was that this was allowed. To talk yes. This yes. Way, yes yes to, yeah. to create community around things yeah. even the most positivist of quantitative designs out right. there there is still this reality behind it well um, um so so what's fascinating here is that we're talking about the way that the subject of this article is talked about because it is very illuminating. The reality is is that somatic research almost has to be done this way to some degree because of the, the nature of what it is. Um, it's very, very difficult to put down in 
more empirical in what we would consider the usual academic way, um, how do you measure and communicate and, you know, bring method to that sort of embodied and individual experience? it gets really dang tricky mm. and it is possible, but you also lose a lot in translation. And so the, the favored method of communicating and researching uh, more somatic ways of working in our field is actually this very qualitative, um, almost like when you read it, there's this feeling of, I'm not sure if I'm reading prose or poetry or research right now, which is wonderful. And that's because that is how uh, we get into a more right brain embodied experience. And when we're talking about something that has to do with somatics in the body, it demands that we get comfortable using um, this way of communicating because it evokes exactly what the, the writer is wanting to evoke in the body of the reader. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's a, it's a good place to start in terms of this has to be written this way in order to really bring forward the point of what she's trying to say. Mm -hmm. If she wrote about it in a very um, black and white theoretical high level way, it would not bring the same uh, evoked sense that this way of communicating does at all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I thought that potentially an important starting point would be to introduce people to the main idea of this article because it's a very new one. Um, and it's the area of ecosomatics, which at this point, there's not a settled name for this because it is so new. So you'll hear it called ecosomatics. You'll hear it called uh, ecopsychology. You'll also hear it called somacology. They're technically all the same thing. <laughs> but because, because there's you know a diversity of thinkers that are bringing this forward at the same time, there isn't necessarily a, a decided upon language yet. Mm. Um, I think it'll get there, and which one will be chosen, I have no idea. But in the meantime, um, you guys can know that it's really all looking at the same thing, slightly different fractal faces of the same issue, um, but really all getting to the same um, core desire of having a way of looking at um, the combination of body, earth, and consciousness. Um, whether you call that consciousness spirit or mind, doesn't really matter. In this context, uh, she's, she's looking very much at the way that the client understands her selfhood in combination with her physical body in relationship with the natural world. Yeah, so it's the coming together. Experience. Yes because I think that that's so important in the telling of this yeah. narrative and the way that the author really puts together each sentence. Yeah. It's so intentional and honoring to the lived experience of both her and both, the client yes. and their relationship. And, yeah. Yeah. And the, the unfolding of it, yeah. it's, there's this very progressive nature to it. So it's not a, um, stagnant experience. Uh, it's not a identification of this happened. It's really this, um, yeah, kind of evolving moment that you're kind of carried along with in the article, which is a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. So where do yeah. you guys want to go with it? I, I highlighted a question that she asks, um, kind of, I mean, she starts the kind of article talking about a story with, um, seeing like a, a, um, herring, is it herring? Yeah. Heron. Yeah. Oh, and then a falcon yeah. and the herons eating a mm. uh, kind of like a mouse or some sort of 
Which even a that furry creature. We need to say what we're really talking. About. <laughs> it's like, wait, the author of this empirical journal started off by talking about a heron eating a. You know, yes. Yeah. Yes. yes, she did. Yeah. So she talks about this walk that she takes before <laughs> she sees a client. Yes. Yeah. And That's the intro. It's literally like this morning I walked down a quiet valley to where it streams. Yeah. To where its stream lets out into a small bay. That's the first sentence. Yeah. Yeah. And she. Yeah. So she tells this story. She talks about how she, what she's seeing and what she's seeing. And we could spin up on this if you want. Oh, yeah. um, but the question comes after. So do we want to spin up on this, the part? Because I no, also I have, I just wanted to contextualize like what okay. you just said okay. for the reader. Right. Yeah. Right. So she asked the question after kind of following the story. It's the same question. Over. And then the story goes on to like be further illuminated through her interaction with her client later. But she asks, what might emerge if we adjusted our listening perspective to carefully hear what our patients experience in their relationship to nature? Yes. Would we want to? If we listen and facilitate a deeper exploration, do we, do we believe it will draw us away from the necessary work of intra and interpersonal material? Do we hear patients' feelings about the earth as resistance or displacement? Could these feelings instead be a root of psychic suffering? If we truly heard... Might prophetic visions arise about what is deeply desired, desires to restore what is wounded and live in dignity with each other and the land. So really, like my my thought goes to um, that first question. What might emerge if we adjusted our listening perspective to carefully hear what our patients experience in relationship to nature? And that like to me, I I think you could meditate on that for weeks. And like I've been thinking, and this is like a callback to the last episode where we talked about when when language of clients drifts towards totally abstract, so they're no longer using those lower mental yeah. mental capacities and learning to inform the higher mental capacities, but they're just in the realm of Detached. high de- high detachment, um, deep dis- um, abstractions, where they're using lots of it's that all of the very kind of impersonal language. And like how that connects to this idea of like in the 21st century, like how often are we in, in places and spaces and invading um, kind of daily rhythms that are abstracted, yeah, that are impersonal. I love like in that, the starting of the paragraph before the quote or the idea shared from Barry Lopez, uh, suggesting that we are autistic in relation yes. to the natural world. Oh my autistic gosh, yes. in the sense that our deepest experiences are never voiced and thus remain encapsulated and undeveloped. Mm-hmm. So it's right after that that she asked the question mm-hmm. of the reader like and of herself even, do we want to know? Yeah. And are they aware mm-hmm. themselves? And in that disposition, like, dang it, the psychoanalytic tradition is so cool. Yeah. Like even the word autistic yeah. In this way, I'm thinking of all of these different authors that talk about this autistic position. The autistic and, position. Yeah, of not knowing yeah. your own sense of rootedness in the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's this sensation of being separate from. Yeah. yeah. The So I think we all highlighted that section. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, right after that, there's one more question. And when I read it, there was sort of this realization of she's stating it from the psychoanalytic tradition, but we could almost substitute one word and look at it from every other tradition and ask the same question. So the question is, do we privilege dream over the direct experience mm-hmm. in the living world? 
And so that's the psychoanalytic tradition, but we could look at it from a CBT perspective and say, do we privilege cognition, right, uh, over the direct experience in the living world? What do we privilege as a therapist? What do we consider valid material for our sessions with our clients? And I think one of the beautiful things that, number one, the field of ecosomatics is attempting to highlight, but then also this article in a very specific way is believing and and feeling that our relationship to the natural world and the the emotions and the sensations that it evokes in us is incredibly rich material to work with in therapy in the same way that we've been discussing for a long time that the intersubjective space between us and the client is incredibly important material to be focused on in therapy also then too is there intersubjective space between them and the natural world right? The, the way that they come into relationship with it, experience it, are provoked by it, and then act upon it. Like all of that is incredibly valid. Um, and I think it, that is so incredibly impactful uh, for us to feel permission to really engage with that. Yeah. And we're kind of doing that in some bizarre ways, not bizarre ways, but very interesting kind of uh, back doorways, things like involving animals in therapy, et cetera. Well, why do we think that's relevant at all? Mm. <laughs> and and this is beginning to really get to the core of why does that make the impact that it does? Well, so, and I like your distinction between, you know, replacing dream with cognition, because mm -hmm. I think it highlights what I would say, even as an undergraduate student, what I thought of things like adventure-based therapy, right? Like it was to it was to create a different environment for the therapeutic diet, which was the yeah. point. Yeah. Which I feel is like sort of an intuitive, simple idea that, mm -hmm. oh, you're going to go like do a ropes course or go on an adventure-based hike. And it'll give you something interesting to talk yeah, about. Like, oh, you can overcome that. Think yeah. of all the other things that you yeah. can overcome. And, oh, and all of the later. analogies that we can draw from this right. experience to this experience. Yeah. Right. But yeah. instead, what I've come to learn even from the analytic tradition is the power of projective identification mm -hmm. and i'm not talking about metaphor that's not related to an embodied experience i'm talking about metaphor that is that is embodied yes. experience yes. that is projective identification just as she goes on to talk about the case that we'll get into yeah um the clients the patient starts to use language describing a scene mm -hmm. that isn't just metaphor she's in the scene she's really mm -hmm. describing a mirror that she sees of herself yes and that, to me, is the difference between detached, as you were saying, Caleb, like d detached. Uh, Abstracted. Yeah, just total abstraction and embodied projective identification. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and, and so I, I would push that even one step further. And now this, this moves into the transpersonal realm, right? Um, but I always go there, and so I will. Um, that we can actually let that be entirely, entirely literal. Mm. So the mirror is us, yeah. right? We, we really are seeing us. And from a transpersonal perspective, when I, you know, go out and, you know, go for a hike and have these moments with nature where I feel profoundly connected and my body is reacting to uh, the natural world that I'm in interaction with, the transpersonal perspective is I am in reaction to it because it is me, mm. right? And it is reacting to me that we are in this um, dynamic with each other because we are the same stuff, 
We are the same matter. We are the same material. And so it's not just about seeing myself in a reflection that, you know, gives me something to then ponder later, but it's about me actually seeing a new facet of myself, of that the myself. natural world right. is me. Yeah. It, it's the moment of standing in the forest and going, there I am. You know, here, here I am (laughs) and there I am. And then to see another human in the midst of that. And we get these really profound encounters and the client walks away going, I don't really know what just happened, but I know that I feel different. Mm -hmm. I feel more expanded. I feel more connected. I at once have the sensation of being more fully an individual, but less alone than ever. And what is that about? Right. And it's really about that, that feeling of the natural world teaches us about the material that we're really made of because we're made of the same stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the, the literal interpretation of ecosomatics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking about like, um, I have two thoughts. One of is the, that idea of, you know, why do we bring animals into therapy? And it's, you know, I experience it as a moment in which like the, the client can like resist really hard which happens but more often than not it's this instigation of their pre-verbal infantile self that is learning rather than remembering yeah. so it's an experiencing self rather than a remembering historical self right. and so they're open to like i have to use something other than and see myself in other ways than language mm-hmm. Or the abstraction, mm-hmm. the, the symbolic abstraction of mm-hmm. language with this dog yeah. or with this horse or in yeah. nature. Yeah. And in the article, she talks about when she sees that she, so she's having this moment where she's watching the heron eat like a mouse or whatever. And then this falcon comes and starts like cawing at the heron mm-hmm. and is like, there's this kind of battle happening. And then she says this line, like aware of an inner, inner pulsing. A yeah. wordless reflection, realizing I had be, I, I had unexpectedly become part of the hunt. Yes. And I like love this because then she goes on to see how with her client, the same sort of pulsing realization, a wordless reflection of what was happening in the therapy was she had become a, a part of the hunt with mm-hmm. the client. Well, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Potential threat, silent witness. Soon I will be at my office with a week ahead of analytic practice. Yeah. 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 yeah that willingness to enter into this like sorting out of doer or done to. Uh And then the third idea, Mm -hmm. the complementarity, like Benjamin is all over this thing. Yes. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Sorry. That's so many connections. that Jessica Benjamin. Sorry. Um, But um, yeah, the connections between the metaphor, the true embodied metaphor and watching then how that can, not only show insight to the case, which it does, right. but also help you really know it and feel it because you're actually seeing it happen Yeah, in everywhere you look. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think like that is part of the beauty of interacting with the natural world is that it has no desire, mechanism, etc. to objectify a human being. The natural world sees us, and that's a huge anthropomorphization, which you guys know what I mean there. Like, the natural world subsumes us because we are part of it. And so that, that you know, phrase, I found myself becoming part of the hunt, is because the natural world does not separate 
right? There, there, that is a, a human thing that we do to each other that is found in no other space and place in the natural world. And so entering into a dynamic with a horse, with a dog, with a tree, um, we have this opportunity to feel a full subjectification because that uh, natural entity does not have the ability to objectify us. It does not have that desire or capacity. And so it produces a sensation in us that is very different than a human interaction. Yeah. And I think, you know, the point of this case that she's getting at is talking about the relationship between the earth and her and this client, this patient who is, as she says in the article, um, a survivor of very intense childhood abuse. Yeah. And so, so much of the language that she starts to pay attention to and what she sees both in the patient and in the world that she's subsumed by, just as you said, Melissa, is about this carnage of yeah. Mother Earth. Yeah. And seeing how that so, so beautifully and tragically both mirrors and joins yes. yeah. the patient and her in this analytic dance. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like the... I don't know, there, there's something so profound about learning universality directly from the earth versus talking about it as a concept through the human mind. The embodied experience of connection um, through a natural encounter does something in a human being that, you know, language about it just cannot do. And I think that is part of why Bridger is that feeling of the natural world embodies and holds all of the dark and the light of our experience Um, the carnage of it and the joy and the beauty of it the exuberance and the creativity and the death and the decay is Mm -hmm. all there laid out in front of us and yet at the same time it finds tremendous balance and gentleness and nurturing Mm -hmm. and so I think it's those kinds of experiences that people have with the natural world that help them reconceptualize their own experiences in a very different way Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah my mind keeps going to um like the idea of like the difference between standing in the woods and standing in a street filled with buildings <laughs> and like the, the experience of like deadness versus aliveness. Yeah. And, and in a way like the dissociation, mm-hmm. it, dissociation as like a way of sort of killing mm. or, or dehumanizing or deactivating things in a way to find a palpable amount of life and in cities this like unconscious acculturation that happens to our bodies which is that like there's so much that's not moving like if statues started to move we'd all freak out right we kind of like statues because they stay still they are object and we like we like buildings because they're predictable Mm -hmm. and when yes it is zizek And when a, and, yeah, and when a building like falls, we all are like, what the heck? That was yeah. supposed to stay up yeah. forever. Yeah. And we, we find ways to keep that going. But in mm-hmm. nature, there's this always like changing and moving energy. Yeah. There's this life that is nonlinear yes. and cyclical, dancing, and cyclical. Seasonal. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's, she talks about, um, the author talks about her, um, client who's named Renee, which is an alias. Um, moving out into like the um, a patch of land where she could dig in the earth, and she notes that um, having a patch of land that was hers uh, had been enormously significant in her finding a path path out of dissociation. And then in italics, she listened and responded to an inner voice 
that had been all but beaten down by competing and attacking points of view. Yeah. So, and I wrote like ideologies, ideologies want to impose desire that, that tell you what you ought to do and feel and be, which is also like in the cityscape, you have streets that tell you where you ought to go and be where you need to, what you need to do, what directions, whereas out in nature, life is like beautifully interwoven, but not as directional. And like, to me, it, it it feels really important to somehow make that connection between like my embodied experience of dissociation is very similar to the difference between a cityscape and the woods. Right. Which is to me, so why it's so powerful and why so often natural experiences are so evocative and thus kind of almost like, um, revelationary like you discover something in that because just as in this patient story they reconnect with and the patient finds access to herself in this land Mm -hmm. and by taking care of it even and this is jumping ahead a little bit but even by taking care of it she rediscovers her own identity in it Mm -hmm. and finding the desire and the hope and the yeah truly the peace of being Mm -hmm. yeah it's so tragic but it's so human yeah. And, and somatic in yeah. that way. It wasn't in this article, but in a, um, a similar article that I read, they were talking about the, the literal mirroring that happens when we are uh, doing healing work with the earth. And I thought about it when they were describing, you know, the client's experience of going into the land and like sticking her hands in the dirt. And it's this phrase of the earth is always saying to us, this is who you are. Mm-hmm. And so much of the, the psychic craving of our clients and of all humans is for somebody to tell us, who am I? <laughs> like, what am I? You know, what is my purpose? What, what is the stuff that I am made of? Um, and so the desire for a very living mirror, a mirror that has something profound to offer us, um, we find it in the natural world in, in ways that is just hard to put language to. Right. And that ineffable quality is actually one of the the features that um, require some qualitative language and, and research is because yeah. it, it is so embodied yeah. that language just sort of gets stumped and, <laughs> and we don't know where to go with it. And so we do things like art and dance and music and um, building things and cooking things because we have to show and express what this this living mirror has birthed within me, has woken up within me. Um, and, and there's so much about that kind of experience that is just super hard to translate in language. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the, the therapeutic dynamic, because language is so much of what we do, um, learning how to sink into that moment to moment, body to body, very visceral yeah. way of interacting is how we produce these same kind of living mirror experiences with our client. In that way, we as therapists have a lot to learn from the very quiet but powerful mirroring that the earth does for people. It's this way of saying, this is what you are. I don't have to tell you in language. I'm just going to sit here yeah. in the center of myself and show you in this, in this way. Yeah. 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 In this, in the story of the article, like what you're talking about is exactly like a point that I wanted to get to where, you know, the author is talking about how Renee, the client then 
after some time of doing really well on this plot of land, starts to then question everything. And she starts to and question God. Deintegrate. I love yeah. that word. Deintegrate. Yeah. yeah. From this, from that state of deintegration yeah. in which we worked at, with the primitive agonies of early abandonment, she emerged with an inner foundation that had more solidity and from which she could grow. We could spend a whole hour on that. But I wanted to get to like what you're talking about, Melissa, where, um, you know, when she's, we have a lot to learn as therapists mm-hmm. from um, the natural world. Yes. So again, the author says the same day that she encountered the uh, heron and the falcon is the same day she had this session with Renee in which Renee was questioning God, trying to, t- and was talking about like, I want to cling to you, the therapist, yeah. the more I let go of God, yeah. the more I feel this like letting go of God, the more mm-hmm. I want to cling to you as a therapist. But then she said, she also wants to prove God. Mm-hmm. She also wants to like cling to that as well. So there's this like back and forth in the client. And then she says, um, she, the encounter with the Falcon and the Heron and the mole, um, situates me in a community of live living beings, a community of diversity and w- wildness of which I can lose track in my very peopled world. I'm mm-hmm. glad to be brought down to size, so to speak before entering the analytic hour with Renee as she wonders about God. And this is like the very important part that I feel so strongly about. It is keeping me settled so as not to get drawn into words and ideological constructs that would take a, take her away from her experience. Like how I resonate with that so much in my own experience, but also with clients of like, yeah, we could run on ideological constructs and I could fill, I could fill seven intensives with ideological constructs. <laughs> yeah, let me teach you some things about yourself yeah. and your mind. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. And, and even like, and we're good at that. We, we can like just to talk do that. about what we're talking about <laughs> yeah. for hours. That's right. But like, like there's this, there's like this experience of being in the room. And like, I think of professor Slughorn's like uh, in Harry Potter, where yeah. his like hourglass turns and mm. it, and it goes slowly Yes, where I could, that would go so fast if I talked about ideological constructs. But to be connected to my embodied experience and the world around me yes. brings me into this room in a space where it's actually tremendously slow. slow. And I just stick with, let's like, we could talk about if God is good, then why do bad things happen? And all that, yeah. all, all yeah. those ideological constructs. Yeah. But what's your experience in this moment of clinging yeah. and the desire to cling? Yeah, because as she was even saying that, like, are you talking about God? Are you talking about your mother? Because yeah. like that's so much of like that all of it, yes. But punishing, yes, mm-hmm. with her absence, yeah. of her feared mother. Yeah. yeah, like that's you know in in the article she's talking about that's one of the components of her case and how that really just finds itself playing over and over and over again in every area mm-hmm. of Renee's mind mm-hmm. in what she's seeing. Here it is, and and it's showing itself back to her. Mm-hmm. And yeah. how she's organizing her past experience, how she's organizing her experience of the therapist. Yeah. It's all there. Yeah. This absent, but angry, yeah. but yeah. real, but not. But, but the clinging to yes, it. But I must have. But yeah. I can't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And everything in me, like when I, that word clinging, if that word was brought out in a session, I mean, I could spend like half an hour with the word clinging. And all of the sensation that somebody feels in connection to that kind of word and what that produces in them. And I'm like so conscious as we talk about this, you guys, of 
most therapists have no freaking idea how to be in this kind of moment with somebody because this is not how we were trained. Yeah. That's a, yeah. And, and so it feels important to say like, we're working on solutions <laughs> to really begin to demonstrate this way of being with, um, other humans and particularly our clients. Um, and the audio format is just not the spot to do that. And so we're looking at, uh, video options and all of that is coming really, really soon because we're very conscious of, as we talk about this way of being with clients, there is likely a craving in people listening to this to see what we actually mean. Like, what does this look like, um, to go that slow and to track that precisely with a client, what their moment to moment embodied experience Direct of, experience. yeah, yeah. The, the here and now, and how do we stay out of those high level theoretical, you know, cognitive conversations, um, but still have rich, meaningful, full sessions. Well, yeah. And in that I would like, to me, it feels like not just stay out of, but to contextualize them, right. not to just let them be adrift in the, soup of abstraction right but to say no this cognitive stuff matters only because only because. it's emergent from the somatic right yeah, well, and yeah. and how it's do emergent. how do we always go back there like how do we let um the body have the final say in whatever we're doing and talking about mm-hmm. um and i think that you know in sip we talk about that a lot of always circling back around and, and anchoring in the body etc and and so that's built into the way that we work um but i think that this this way of talking about our work with our clients is probably very new to a lot of people and so all of that to say we're not done talking about it because it feels that important to us oh yeah (laughs) yeah 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 she um is it okay if i read another quote yeah there's probably a good spot to wrap up too yeah Yeah. because she was she says um indwelling in the body and dwelling indirect experience which like when we talk about this like the difference between bottom up or top down or overly cognitive sessions, overly abstracted sessions, or are we embodied? Are we connected? Are we with our direct experiences? Like that's what she's talking about. Uh, are both of us in the inner subjective space inhabiting uh, our bodies and sitting with our direct experience? Um, she says, and dwelling in the body, dwelling in direct experience with one's earth cuts through dissociative splitting anchors one in relation to a wisdom that is derived from a felt knowing. And, and earlier she talked about like in, in the idea of like being kind of cut off. Um, I want to, I want to just go back to it. Um, she says, um, Oh, in the being autistic Uh in our relationship to the world, she says yet for a voice to emerge, there must be one who listens. Yes. And, and if there's, one thing this like article did for me was one as a therapist, like situating myself in the room as like in a way embodying nature as the one who listens Yes, and, and invites the, the client to come into a space of like attuned listening, but then also to encourage clients and myself to go out into nature mm-hmm. and to see like in the scene of myself in nature, like that is not, without nature listening to me that's right and and seeing me you said that like anthropomorphically but i would almost say like literally literally nature sees me yes and makes way for me to see parts of myself like the 
the most destructive parts of myself, the most beautiful parts of myself, the most cocooning and shelling parts of myself, the most hidden, the most illuminated, like all parts of me get seen in nature. Mm -hmm. And then in sessions, like, can I be the one who listens to my client? Mm -hmm. And that is the, that is the thing sitting with that direct experience that cuts through dissociative splitting and anchors us in, in, in a, in a wisdom that is from a felt knowing. Mm-hmm. And that just feels like, oh, this article. Mm-hmm. Well, so clearly we need to do a whole training series where we take therapists out into nature and let nature, nature teach them how to do therapy. I mean, we're going to do that, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> sounds right. So, it sounds about right. We'll work on that, guys. <laughs> well, thank you for a beautiful conversation. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, this is not about the article because if I start talking about it again, we're just going to go another mm-hmm. week. But to me, it's just so beautiful to have the diversity of literature reflected already so in the like 18 episodes of this podcast, yes. because this is really what it's about. Yeah, It's so much about what are people saying? Mm-hmm. How are they, how are they talking? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What are they talking about? Yeah. That, that to me, I know those seem like simple questions, but they're so, so curious to mm-hmm. me and like with my research students that's really what i want them to catch oh yeah like i don't care like what your project turns into i really don't mm-hmm. and i know that's infuriating to you because you're just trying to do this for the grade <laughs> right now but like aren't you interested yeah can't you hear and see and feel what it is that you're trying to observe and mm-hmm. how are you going to talk about that mm-hmm. how do you think other people have talked about that yeah so speaking of that my top pick for the next article that we do in this series of somatics because i think we have one more is that right i don't think so i don't are think we so. done? i think we were done okay yeah. well I, we might do a moat about you could this do it moment. you could do a shout out to the listeners and we will know the ogers who go and read this article well yeah okay okay so so if you want another article like this one where this one focused on ecosomatics, there is a woman that is a, a chair of a prestigious university named Claire Wills, W-I-L-L-S. And she writes in a very similar fashion, but it's about dance. And it's all about the metaphor, but also the literal embodied experience of dance as a therapeutic tool in her own personal life. Um, and the way that the interplay between humans in that situation just produces all kinds of illumination about what it means to be a human being in relationship. Um, so go find Claire Will's article called stepping out mm. and you're welcome. <laughs> maybe that's, maybe that's people's, um, like for those of you who are, um, bored and tired of like random control trials and this stuff. Yeah. That, go, go read know, that kind have, of work. Uh, we'll convert you eventually, but like go read that <laughs> and, 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 and it taste counts the beauty. as academic loveliness. Yeah. Like and this, this woman is the like the top of the food chain when it comes to the academic world. And her writing is like something straight out of poetry. It's beautiful and magical. So Claire Wills. May we not divorce from our body creativity. Exactly. No need. Scientists and poets. Yes, please. <laughs> All right. Thank you guys for listening. We hope you enjoyed this at least half as much as we enjoy talking about it. Thanks for listening to this episode. Find us on our website at beyondhealingcenter.com slash media. Also, subscribe to our Patreon to support us at patreon.com slash beyondhealingcenter. Find all episodes on iTunes and Spotify. Thanks for listening.
If you enjoy what you hear on these episodes and are interested in speaking with one of us at Beyond Healing Institute, we would love for you to reach out about our consultation opportunities. Of all the many things that we do, consultation is one of the things that we enjoy most. We love supporting other clinicians in conceptualizing their cases from a neurobiological and nervous system-informed perspective. We offer individual and group consultation for somatic integration and processing, as well as for EMDR therapy. Individual consultation is a great way to get personal time to reflect on your cases and how you and your work influence one another. Group consultation offers so many opportunities for learning and connection with other like-minded clinicians. Our greatest mission at Beyond Healing Institute is to offer opportunities for professional development and create a supportive community in the field of mental health. Beyond Healing Institute is excited to announce that we're moving. Okay, well, we're not moving our building, but we're moving our trainings, continuing education resources, and community events to Canvas. This will help you as a member of the community to stay in contact with other members of the Beyond Healing community while also providing a platform that brings consistency and convenience to all of our trainings and course offerings. Canvas is an online learning management system that will be your home base for all things beyond healing, as well as a virtual campus that will house all of our trainings and continuing education resources. We're so excited to invite you to our virtual campus on Canvas, and we hope to see you there soon.